When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this one featuring Matt Zarb cousin, Jeremy Corbyn's former spokesman. So you can imagine how excited I was before this, and it didn't disappoint. Firstly, let me apologise for this being a week late. Uh, I had to postpone it because I was slightly losing my voice. Um, I've been on tour and I'm working on a show at the moment on Sky One called The Week That Wasn't, which is an impression show which has taken its toll a little bit on my throat. So uh, thanks to Matt for allowing us to, to postpone it until this week. And it, it was worth waiting for, and I hope it's worth waiting for for you. He's brilliant, and he gives a great defence, not just of Corbyn, but of Corbyn's ideas, of Corbyn's policy offer, and just of politics generally. We talk about Brexit, we talk about his own struggles with gambling addiction. And you, you may have seen Matt on the media recently. He's been crucial to getting the government to limit the maximum stake on fixed odds betting terminals, FOBTs, to £2. And he talks very frankly and very openly about his own addiction and the way that manifested itself and how he has to control it. So we talk about, as you would imagine, so many different things. What it was like working for Corbyn, you know, take us into Corbyn's office. What was it like having to brief the lobby as Corbyn's spokesman and just all and everything in between? I could have talked to him for a hundred hours and not run out of things to ask him. So I hope he'll come on again in the future. We also talk about the tone of online debate. And if you're familiar with Matt through Twitter, you will know he's a passionate defender of Jeremy Corbyn. He's robust in his language. And there's a suggestion actually towards the end of... Uh, uh, tell me what you think. I won't ruin what it is, but an idea of how perhaps we could just calm things down a little. Um... But he was a wonderful guest. Uh, so enjoy. This is Matt's old cousin. Delighted to be joined by Jeremy Corbyn's former spokesman and now working for the Campaign for Fairer Gambling, Matt Zarb Cousin. Hiya, Matt. Matt, welcome to the show. From one Matt to another. From one Matt to another. I, I think I'm more excited about having you on. I mean, I'm always excited about guests. But I'm particularly excited about having you on because politics in the last few years has changed enormously in terms of the sorts of voices and the sorts of places that people are listening to and getting their politics from. And really, you've been at the forefront of a new type of political activism, particularly online, where instead of always having to get it from the Today programme or The Guardian, there's Navarra Media and there's The Canary and there's The Squawk Box and then there's you and you're separate to all those things, but you're part of a very new breed of political activist and political actor so it's, it's great to have you on oh thanks that's, that flatters me somewhat i think but well, no me... that's uh, very kind i mean uh, it, i think the internet and social media really has really taken off obviously in the last few years compared to 2017 even compared to 2015 i think it's like incomparable really the influence of it and in in that in that respect it's democratized media outlets and you know there's, there's new kind of entrance into the market and 
And yeah, it's a very exciting time. It has, particularly for comment pieces. Like journalism is a different thing, but for comment, obviously Owen Jones has really been uh, probably the one that people would think about most. But there's there's Liam Young and there's there's you, there's Aaron Bastard. There's so many new voices, new interesting voices that that write well, that are passionate, that are convincing, that have this can garner huge amounts of followers and can be massively influential. I mean, I suppose the, the the first question is, did you expect to become so influential or has this all sort of happened by accident? Uh, I think <laughs> I think it's uh, happened largely by accident. Um, I left the leader's office in April 2017. and so then, Just over a year ago? Just over a year ago. And then um, the election was called very shortly after. And then I ended up assuming this kind of role of a pundit or kind of uh, sort of... In the same way that the Arsenal fan TV people are like, I'm like the Labour fan TV sort of yeah. activist, like super activist, whatever you want to call it. Um, not really impartial, but someone has to. Someone had to go out to bat for Corbyn. No one was really willing to do that at yeah. the time. It was like, oh, they're 20 points behind or whatever. But I actually, you know, I genuinely thought that once people start to engage more with politics and, you know, it doesn't really affect people's day-to-day lives. And they saw what Labour had to offer. And I knew that policies polled very well. We'd done a lot of work building up to potential snap election um i thought that there were there was going to be a huge swing back to labor and 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 that's what happened and yeah you proved right uh, and i think you know after there was a little bit of kind of defiance after because we were ridiculed a lot in the run up to that election and i can you know if you live in the westminster bubble and that's what you live and breathe and that's where you get information from i can understand why you would react like that to what we were saying but um you know we we our, our perception of politics and and how we believe it relates to people and their lives it's, it's very material and it's kind of orientation it's like it's not a game uh and i think that's where we were dif- we're different it's like we we understand we, i mean i know i worked in westminster but yeah. it's not a westminster orientated approach to politics it's more movement based and more kind of related to people's lives i think that's that's where we thought Labour might get traction. I have to say you were ridiculed by people like me. I always thought Corbyn <laughs> was a joke. I never thought he would get the sort of result that he was going to get. And he proved he proved me wrong. He proved a lot of his allies wrong, who I think probably never thought he would get as close. I mean, if you were putting money on the next Prime Minister, you put money on Corbyn now. So a lot of us have had to reassess where he is. Um, I don't necessarily agree with him anymore, but what I absolutely accept is he's far more popular than I thought he was going to be, and that campaign absolutely changed people's minds. I mean, if nothing else, what was great about that campaign was that it disproved the rule that the campaign never matters. And it's always exciting to live in times when when rules are being disproved. Quite apart from how disastrous the Tories were and how horrendous Theresa May treated uh, or, or, or was during that campaign, what do you think it is about Corbyn specifically that turned that election, obviously he's still lost, but what, what turned that election from being a wipeout and a disaster to actually being a relative success? I think everything was built around the manifesto. So the manifesto, when it leaked, deliberate or not... <laughs> I'm Do you think told, it was I, deliberate? I'm told it wasn't deliberate, but you know, they wouldn't tell me anyway. Um, <laughs> so, look, that that obviously fueled interest in what Labour's policies. It was like, you know, there's a lot of intrigue anyway, or what's yeah. Corbyn going to say, you know? Um, and then they were attacked by the policies were attacked by the right wing press mainly obviously and and that gave more oxygen to these ideas that were popular you know if you get attacked for wanting to nationalize the railways uh and people think well, actually that's a good idea then yeah. it just actually elevates the message um the the key difference is i think uh usually election campaigns are filled with uh, what i call politician statements so politicians will say something like 
I want everyone to fulfil their potential, <laughs> yeah. right? Which is something you cannot disagree with. Yeah, that's like, right. Like, no one's going to say, oh, I don't want him to fulfil their potential or whatever. Um, what the Corbyn Manifesto did was it created um, an antagonism. So it said, we're going to tax these people to pay for this thing. And in theory, you can disagree with that. You can say, I don't want to tax these people more because I don't want to pay for this thing. Yeah. And eventually, that's what happened. That The Tories actually did that because we said, we're not going to tax the 95%, we're going to tax the top 5%, we're going to pay for all these things. And the Tories actually ended up saying, we're not going to tax the top 5% and we're going to tax the 95%. We're not going to rule out tax rises for the many, right? Yeah. And when you create that antagonism, which is quite a bold thing to do, uh, but I think it warranted it in the circumstances and in the context we're in economically and politically, uh, you set the agenda. Yeah. And where you had Labour announcing policies every day, every morning on broadcast, on radio, you know, Corbyn out in front of masses of people at rallies. The Tories actually didn't have anything to say. Yeah. Uh, so their com- their campaign was terrible. Let's not pretend, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't like... Um, but at the same time, Labour had an offer. And I think it was the first time they had a real offer. Uh, you may disagree with this, Matt, but I think yeah. probably since 2001. Uh, but I don't know what you think about that. I think 2005 was still an offer. Yeah. Um, but I would agree in terms of 2010 and 2015, there were, there were miserable elections, yeah. And I think the, the problem with 2010 and 2015 was that, firstly, I think I never really had a great deal of confidence in Ed Miliband as a leader. So that I, I feel slightly different about 2015. 2010 was a real tragedy, I think, in terms of an election because it was absolutely winnable. In fact, the last three elections have all been winnable. So there's there's that sorrow for someone who doesn't want to live under a Tory government that that is always there. But but I, I broadly agree that the last election was definitely an offer. And what Corbyn did, and what the Labour Party did, people like you did, was set the agenda, was set the running. And for too long, I think Labour had been a bit timid. To be fair to Ed Miliband on energy companies on media regulation, he did try and set the weather. Sometimes the individual does matter. And, it, and with Corbyn, I think people feel a sense of authenticity that they haven't felt in a politician for a very long time. I think with Miliband, it was um, the sentiment that something had to be done certainly were, certainly conveyed. But with energy, this is a great example. Miliband would say, or actually, let's say rail nationalisation. Yeah. Miliband would say, we'll have a, pri- a public company competing in the private market for the, ten- for the tender. Yeah. Corbyn said, well, we're going to nationalise all of it. Yeah. And in energy, he's, Miliband says, we'll have an energy price cap. And Corbyn said, we'll nationalise energy. Yeah. And it's much easier to sell that message, whether it's as commentators, as a shadow cabinet, as the leader, um, on the doorstep, if you're clear about what your principles are and you follow through with it. And it's bolder. Yeah. It excites people more. It does. Whether definitely. it's right or wrong, I don't necessarily want to nationalise the rail industry or the energy industry, but as an idea, it's, it's far bolder. The, the, the downside of that is that it's quite easy for people to say, well, actually, these are quite old ideas. You know, where's the fresh, new left-wing thinking? I know people talk about fully automated luxury communism, and this is... But that's what's exciting about that, is how do you sell? Whether I do agree with it or not is really not the point. The, the, the great creative ex, you know, experience of politics, of coming up with new ideas and how you frame them and put them in a coherent way is, is a real thrill. How does the, the new left almost, like the old left in a way, come up with these new ideas? What, what is the new, rather than just nationalising rail and energy, what are the big new ideas? What is the stuff that will really energise the British public? I think the principles of um, some things should be run for profit and some things shouldn't, and markets aren't always efficient, yeah. the most efficient way of delivering services. I think that 
that can apply itself to public services that have been uh, privatised. So I think that that, that 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 isn't that isn't going back in time so much as recognising that we've made a misstep in that respect. I mean, other countries have you know, maintained private uh, public rail. Sorry. So you know, I think we can uh, redress that. But in terms of like where we go in the next 10, 20 years, automation is going to put millions of people out of work at, yeah. the mo- at the rate we're going. And unless we come to terms with the fact that uh, corporations, obviously, they are um, geared towards maximising profit, re- maximising efficiency, reducing the labour force, if that means maximising efficiency and profit, then the, the state surely has a role to protect people uh, from you know losing their jobs, yeah. uh, and therefore, if uh, if the state is in charge of the means means of production in some respects in many sectors, then there may be an opportunity in the future for a world without work. Now, I think that's a great idea. I would love a world without work, <laughs> right? Now, now the, the beauty of it is, why would you want corporations to uh, own all of that, have all that power, and have you know effectively? be able to run the economy in the way they do and to decide whether or not people work and how many people they're going to employ and why would you not want to this is what I always, always say about the left the left can be honest about the vision the vision that we want is something we can actually articulate because it's a good thing yeah but the right it's like kind of we want I don't know some kind of Singapore like low tax uh, offshore tax haven sort of economy and uh, reducing workers rights and all this kind of stuff and I actually think we can we can really be honest. And we, if, if that's where we want to go, if that's what the objective is, then I think people can, actually, if anything, pe- more people buy into the project because they can see what the route, the route is. But what the right have always been very good at, particularly the Republicans in America, is framing it in terms of individual liberty and freedom. And that is the fear with the left is, you're absolutely right, people don't want the corporations to run everything. People also don't want the government to run everything either. As where is that middle ground? People wouldn't necessarily want the government to completely run the press or completely run the judiciary. They won't want them to touch the judiciary at all. There are, there, are, there are pillars of the state and pillars of our lives that we do want free from government interference. So where, I suppose for you, where is the line of where the state should and shouldn't intrude? Uh, I think that uh, where there's democracy, uh, where the state can be democratised, I think that that is a good uh, in sort of insurance policy against any kind of tyranny. Um, I... I mean, look, I think that it's, it does depend on what happens with the economy in the next few years. I mean, my assumption is that you're going to get more companies like Uber, Deliveroo, you know, these kind of gig economy companies. Yeah. And actually, I don't know if you've seen, but Deliveroo is a very interesting case study because uh, what's happened is they, they wanted workers' rights. They wanted basic rights, minimum wage, holiday pay. Right? Yeah. And the, the Deliveroo executive chief executive and the board they inserted a clause into the contracts and they said you could in in effect subcontract out your job so therefore you're not an employee and now this is going to the high court they're appealing this and really this has huge ramifications for the labor market because if they win Deliveroo and I believe they probably will because they've got the huge huge corporate power uh, and resources other companies like for example Topshop you know are we going to see this kind of employment practice permeate yeah. to other sectors, right? And what what ends up happening is you have a concentration of wealth, so inequality becomes more rampant. People don't have money to spend. It's not sustainable as a model. 
So therefore, you have to rethink the model. You have to rethink the economic model. And, and if that means that the state has more uh, influence or more power, then as long as it's democratised, I think that that's a good thing. It's better than having no power at all, which is kind of where we're headed. But when you say democratised, what do you mean by that? Because we have a parliament, we have a parliamentary system... Um, so we have a select committee system where people are held to account. We have uh, a parliament where people are held to account. Would you, when you say democratised, would you have elected heads of companies? I mean, wh- what would that look like? I think there should be more democracy in the workplace, definitely. Uh, and workers should be represented on boards. I mean, yeah. that's a first step. I mean, Germany do that. Uh, I think we have what we have in this country is uh, parliamentarism. So you have kind of career... I think this is actually... This uh, exemplifies the split in the Labour Party because you have the socialists, I think, and you have the parliamentarists. And the parliamentarists are, what I'd say, career career representatives. And uh, this is where the kind of tension arises between when you talk about mandatory reselection because it's like... It's almost seen as unconstitutional. How can these people want to replace their representative you know this is not how the system works it's supposed to be two parties and they represent us and they get on with governing or or opposing and it's kind of all in that kind of context the idea of introducing more democracy into that is seen as kind of a uh, almost a uh, it's an affront to the system is it democracy i think it is i think really the more people that participate in the political process the better. That's but, my general view. But there's more. But more people do when these people face the public at the general election. So MPs are are accountable to their constituents first, sure, and local Labour Party members second. But should, a, is that the right balance? Do you think, or should they be more accountable to local members? When well, I think when we have a system where um, you derive the executive, the government, from the legislature, which mm-hmm. is obviously MPs, then you are electing primarily you're electing the government. Uh, so the Labour brand or the Conservative brand is the most important thing uh, to a candidate. It's yeah. not they're not they're not really being elected on their personal uh, vote, which I think the last election it was about six percent of people voted for people because of who they were rather than the party. Yeah. Um, and when you have that kind of system, I think it's very important. Unless we end up with a system where you directly elect the government, you have some kind of presidential system. It's very important that you do have that. What I would call, I mean, even closed primaries. You know, you have a kind of way of electing who represents you. In America, they have that because they know that some areas are never going to be Republican. So we have to have kind of, you know, some kind of say in who represents us as a, as a Democrat. Isn't there a danger, though? Uh, and I say this is some, obviously on a, on a different wing of the Labour movement to you that used to work for the party. And obviously you're constantly trying to keep the party on the track that you want it to be on. And that's true of every point on the political compass. The danger is that you can design a mechanism that eventually is your undoing, that Mm. for the moment it suits fans of Jeremy Corbyn and Momentum and all the rest of it to have this party democracy. Should the weather change, should, for whatever reason, I don't see it happening, half a million Blairites join the Labour Party, then would you then turn against that and say, actually, no, we, we don't want these new members choosing our local MPs? Would you, would you hold true to that principle or would you think of some other mechanism for, for holding members to account, holding members of parliament to account? I, I can honestly say you know, the principle for me is the main thing and there has, you know, any kind of perception that uh, there might be that you know, there's a, uh, a move to consolidate power within the party 
the leader's office and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, if, that un, if it undermines the move to democratise the party, that for me is the most important thing. And I think that Labour has not been a democratic party for a long time. And we don't know what that looks like. And I think that, you know, obviously there are risks, particularly in some areas, of course there are, for, for the, the left, quote unquote. But the principle for me matters more than anything else. Do you think the public are that bothered about whether the Labour Party is quote-unquote democratic or not? Because it seems to me the period where you would probably say it wasn't democratic, it, it won elections, and the period where it's arguably becoming more democratic, it is getting close but still losing. I think there's two um, facets to that. So, like, firstly, I think that only mass membership parties are going to be able to win elections within the next 10 years. And I think the Conservatives are in a... Uh, it's problematic for a number of reasons. I think the, the main the main is social media and the influence of that. And if you've got half a million people parroting your message on social media, you're starting from a much higher baseline. Yeah. You know, you have more conversations with people. I think that the Conservatives are going to come unstuck with that in the next 10 years. So that's the first thing. I think it encourages more participation, more members. So I think that's a very important aspect. Um, it is actually, I think, a means to an end in terms of the offer as well. If more people are able to participate in policy making, if it's not top down, if they feel more engaged, more able to, more empowered by the political process, um, that's actually going to make for a much more attractive offer to the electorate as a whole. So these are just kind of two assumptions yeah. I have, I guess, but this is just the way I see it. But there's still, the slate system still exists, doesn't it? So Momentum will tell their members to vote for NEC candidates and on the whole they'll vote for them. Unison will organise, United will organise. There might be more people, but they're still behaving in the same way. Uh, the the slate uh, is more about, um, I think, in the initial stages when the the momentum and the Corbyn project trying to assert itself over the party in order to democratise it, and I think that is very important, and I'll come on to that in a sec, but I think that that's understandable because you want to compete and win elections in order to ultimately get to the point where you can you, you can empower the members more um, now if it doesn't happen a lot of people will fall away mm. so they ha so they have to follow through with it what hangs over all this and we, we talked you know in terms of the the economic model of a country you'd like to see and nationalizing all these things is is brexit is that it makes all those things harder it makes unemployment more likely it makes a recession more likely it makes that money to, to buy these assets far harder to find. One of the great frustrations of people who are tired of the Tories, who don't want a hard Brexit, of Jeremy Corbyn, is that why can't he bring himself to be more pro-European? Or more to the point, more pro-European Union? I think it would be a real mistake uh, to at this stage uh, call for a second referendum or to oppose Brexit. I don't think that the public opinion is, is anywhere near where it needs to be for that not to be counterproductive. Do you think it, then he's sort of changing as a politician? Because in his backbench days, if he really believed something, he'd get up and say it. Now that he's on the brink of power, is he being a bit more political and saying, well, actually, I might want a second referendum, if he does, but the, a public opinion isn't there yet, and I'll just wait till it gently reaches that point on the compass before I say something? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think he's entitled to do that, though, because we've had a referendum... Yeah. And it's very rare that we have referendum <laughs> referenda in this country. And now we've actually asked people, do you want to be in or out? And they've said out. Uh, we can't really ignore that. Um, I think that's quite problematic. So I think, look, let's see what the government comes back with. Corbyn's not negotiating. And, and I think that if 
by October if they if the best they can do is EEA with some conditions and you know uh, business will suffer and the economy will suffer and uh, lots of uh, bureaucratic measures and all this kind of stuff people will be turned off that and I think then you can maybe make the case for what was being called a people's vote where you say do you want the deal or do you want to stay in yeah and I think that that's the point to do it, right? It's not now. If you do it now, he's just like then boxed in with yeah. what has been called the Ramonas and he's trying to sabotage <laughs> Brexit, right? Yeah. But, like, if, but if he does it in October, he's like, okay, well, that makes sense. And people people can see. I mean, as you know, Matt, in, in politics, show don't tell is the kind oh, of best way, right? And in comedy, in, all, in, <laughs> in any sort of anything where you're trying to convince people or take people on any sort of journey, absolutely show don't tell. But do you get the sense that he is pro-European, he's waiting, or do you get a sense, and you've worked for him, that actually, really, it's probably not his biggest priority, and that's, not, that's probably putting it lightly, but he, he might not be that bothered that we are going to leave the European Union. I think that there are aspects of the single market and the European Union which would make doing what we want to do in the manifesto and maybe in the future more difficult. State aid? Yeah, particularly. Uh so I think that that's probably a concern. So, look, there are, there are um, positives and negatives to leaving the European Union. Look, I think if you, if you were able to somehow negotiate a bilateral trade deal, control of the border, uh, you know, do, be able to do trade deals around the world and a cu- kind of customs arrangement, then that would be better than being in because you could do your own trade deals, right, in theory. So, so you, we don't know what they're going to... They're obviously not going to negotiate that now because they've been useless. But, like, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying is when people say, if you leave a single market, then there's going to be a recession. Well, if that's the case, then uh, if you would... And therefore, there's going to be austerity. Well, if you would oppose austerity if we're not in the single market, then why wouldn't you oppose it if we're outside it? And if you then invested in things like research and development and manufacturing, you might actually work your way out of recession I, I, I think it would be uh, it would be a problem if they leave with a bad deal or no deal obviously in the short term but I just I think that the people that would say that it's going to be a complete disaster and the sky is going to fall in I think that they are actually it's not doing a very good job of expectation management I don't think it's going to be as bad as they're saying I hope you're right <laughs> God I hope you're right Matt I mean in terms of where you are personally regardless of Corbyn I presume you voted Remain. I did. Which, uh, I presume you'd vote Remain again. I presume you yeah. wouldn't want us to really leave the European Union. Do you ever get impatient with Corbyn? Do you think, oh, come on, mate, you know, show, show us a bit of leg? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've never, I've never thought leg. that. No, no. Uh, uh, look, I, I, I think that he's, 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 it's a very difficult thing for na- to navigate, particularly yeah. from opposition. And I think that their position has been probably the... Co- the correct one. I, I don't really have any gripes with that at all. Uh, and as I say, I think what, what's it, what it's enabled is leaving our options open. So um, in October, because he said jobs first Brexit. I mean, it's you know, fairly. Uh, it's as as um, <sighs> as detailed as it needs to be at this stage, I think. But like, if anything compromises that, you can say, well, look, you know, this is this is not meeting our our red lines. Let's let's reevaluate. And we, as I say, we don't know what they're going to negotiate. My fear with like the jobs first Brexit thing is that it's it's helping the Tories out. It's doing Theresa May's job for her. You're, Why so? Because you're reframing Brexit in a positive way. You're saying that Brexit can deliver jobs when actually the government's own impact assessments say it's a recession of or a, a cut to GDP over 15 years of between three and eight percent. I mean that's that's a recession in anybody's book. Yeah. There's no way you can make that jobs first. I mean that's 
That's what? jobs last. <laughs> I think if you stay in the customs union, or a customs union, as they've said. Well, that's the crucial thing. Is it? Is it the customs union or a customs no. union? Well, this is the problem because you. <laughs> You cannot negotiate Brexit from opposition, so you end up. You want you want to kind of respect the result. That's the main thing, and then you want to say, well, okay, well then, what would you do? We think a customs union would be the most seamless kind of transition to a post-Brexit system, and therefore, you know, can you negotiate a customs union where you can do trade deals? Or you have a say in what the trade deals are with the European Union. Uh, there's no hard border with in Northern Ireland between Ireland. Uh, that's probably the the best kind of outcome um in that respect but it's as i say it's difficult because we're not in we're not there negotiating it's ollie robbins it's Theresa may it's mm. you know, david davis and i mean they're not doing a great job and i think they've actually made a mistake they made a mistake early on in the process by invoking article 50 without pre-negotiations and that that's a that was a huge mistake they made and you know f- from from opposition to then try and have to compensate for that is incredibly difficult so you worked for Corbyn. Let's go right back to the start. What was it, firstly, that politicised you? Uh, gambling addiction. So you got... Well, I was going to come on to fixed odds betting terminals and the phenomenal victory that... Not just the, the campaigns had, but you personally really have played a huge part in the campaign for fair gambling and the announcement of the government last week yeah. that the maximum stake will be £2 on these things. So we'll come on to the detail of that in a second. Excellent. At what age did you get addicted to gambling and how? I got addicted at 16. Bloody hell. Which is pretty young. I wasn't supposed to be in betting shops then. But I uh, I, I got addicted to the machines quite quickly. Um, so why the machines are not horses, accumulators, the other sort of gambling things that are available? See, I did I did accumulators. I did, I did football bets. Um, but it, it's just, I think it's the speed and the capacity to yeah. stake. It's on a machine. You don't, you sort of lose touch with how much... Uh, you know the value of the money that you're betting, and how you know how quickly you're losing, and try and chase it, and you become desensitised to it. Really, these are basically computerised roulette wheels. That's right. Yeah. So we're it, just hitting a button, and it's one spin every twenty seconds, and up to a hundred pounds a spin. So my God. So I got myself into a, a, a right state, uh, <laughs> and uh, over four years lost about well about twenty grand. It's not in the grand scheme of life. It's not the end of the world but when I was 20 it's I a felt, huge amount I felt like you know I got into loads of debt and I was like I'm never going to get out of this and couldn't get any more money and so was that credit up. credit card debt loans it was multiple student overdrafts yeah I did that uh, yeah and uh, and I sold all my stuff on eBay which was uh, to, 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 to pay to, the debt to, down to, to put in the machine which was so a, actually there's the debt man. and then there's all the other money that you you wasted on it yeah and there's a debt there was money I had earned through jobs and I mean it was it was bizarre like I worked uh, 10-20 hours a week and then I would lose it in like 5 minutes or something and what are the consequences of that like obviously you've lost the money but emotionally yeah so this is a very good question like people talk a lot about the money how much did you lose how much did you as if that's kind of a proxy for how much like how bad shit it was. you've been through. Yeah, sorry, yeah. my language. Um, no, it's fine, mate. It's a podcast. Say whatever you like. Uh, um, uh, but actually, it, 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 I think the the harm, the real harm, is done uh, psychologically, and uh, the rapid highs and lows, the not being able to actually enjoy anything except gambling. If you're not doing it, thinking about gambling you're, all the time, all the time, you're never in the room. Your relationships fall away. You don't speak to your 
you know, you, you're there, but you're not there. You know, you're just thinking, oh, when I can kind of gamble. And your concentration span is just completely sapped. Um, mine's not much better now, actually, but, but it was completely, you know, in the, yeah, completely ridiculous. So it had a, I think recovering from that, that impact took longer than actually paying off my debt. So that did you sense. have, oh, it makes absolute sense. I've got friends who um, struggle with gambling. What always struck me with them was they feel the defeats, but actually, they don't really feel the victories. The, no. the, the victories actually aren't that aren't that satisfying, and the money goes straight back in the machine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I'm not like a count, trained counsellor or anything, but people do ask me, like, how do you stop, how do you stop? And and the one thing I say to them, which seems to resonate, is, look, this is this is a completely pointless endeavour, right? <laughs> Let's just look at this rationally. If, yeah. if, if, you, if you lose, you're going to chase it, right? And if you win... What are you going to do with the money? Yeah. You're just going to go back to the betting shop until you lose and then chase it. Right? So there's no escape unless you stop gambling. There, there is no escape. And then, But to do that, for me, it took me six months and a lot of counselling. That's quick. Yeah. Well. Relatively quick. Relatively. I'm sure it, I'm sure I think it felt rel- very long at the time. It, relatively quick, yeah, to be fair. And I was very lucky that I got out of it when I did. I was 20. So, I was, you know, it's not ruined my life. Yeah. Um... And this was why you at university? Yeah. At Birmingham, was it? Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. A big city, lots of places to gamble. I mean, was, was yeah. were, were app-based gambling things going on at that point, or was it pre-app? It was pre-app, thank goodness. So it probably would have been even worse. I reckon it probably would have been, yeah. There was something about going to the machine, though. I mean, online gambling was there. Yeah. There was something about going to the machine, putting the money in, and if you won, you got paid out straight away over the counter in cash. Yes. And there's something about that that I think was very appealing. And also you could go there and it was somewhere to go and you could get away from, what was your house or your, wherever you're living and and just escape in the betting shop. There's something about that as well. Do you still feel any of the desires? Yes, I do. And, and I know exactly how it feels. And sometimes I have dreams where I'm gambling. You know, like how you have some people who are drug addicts have using yeah. dreams, yeah, I have yeah. gambling dreams, and I wake up and I feel terrible, and, like, and I'm like, it's a dream, excellent. Um, I occasionally like, have it about smoking. I'll give up yeah. a year and a half ago, and I'll occasionally wake up feeling guilty that I've smoked, and I will even feel the effects about, <laughs> I didn't even smoke, and then they're immediately gone. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I definitely... Um, how do you stop yourself now? I think you. I think the best way of describing it is like you build up layers in your brain, so it's like... Initially, you're just, you have no barrier to, no ability to control behaviour. So you're just like, I want to do it, I'm doing it. Totally impulsive. Yeah, totally impulsive. You become totally impulsive. I think it affects you in that way. Um, And then eventually you're like, you just slowly over time, you you work out that this is not a good idea, you know. And and even if you had the urge, you'd be like, I'm not going to go down that path. My life now is better. Yeah. Um, This is much more kind of... I'm better without it, sort of thing. Um, in the same way, I guess, if you've given up smoking, you yeah. must know, like, there must be some kind of psychological process there where you say, um, if I have that one cigarette, it's going to lead to another, and it's and I've got this far, and actually that's I'm better right. without smoking. And it's yeah. it re- it's like a... I think that, that's what CB, cognitive behavioural therapy does. It's like, it re- teaches you to think about things differently. Yes. Um, whereas you might think of it as a positive thing, it's actually a negative thing. So that was... Part, did you have CBT as part of your counselling? And was that the most effective control? 
It, it certainly worked, yeah. I mean, it, um, it, as I say, it took me, from then, it took me about six months to stop. I did relapse a couple of times. I got another couple of hits of loan and stuff, student loan and whatever, got money somehow. Um, and uh, I lost that. And then but when I turned 20, I, uh, I, I finally stopped. And uh, the, the reason I got involved in the fair gambling is because I know that if, if it wasn't, if I'd never played roulette at three spins a minute, up to £100 a spin yeah. in a betting shop, I would never have got addicted to gambling. I don't believe I would have done. And the kind of research sort of backs that up. And yeah, I'm very obviously delighted that we got the result. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you think, in a way... You've replaced gambling with politics. Yeah, I have. <laughs> because it, it it provides a sort of thrill. Yeah. There are results that, like election results that are satisfying. There is the day-to-day adrenaline of politics. And politics does attract people with addictive personalities. Yeah. When I went through counselling, they said, what do you like doing other than gambling? I was like, well, not much. And they said, well, there must be something you like. Have you read Das Kapital? <laughs> Yeah, my my therapist was a was a Marxist. No, uh, so, so I ended so I ended up like they said, "What do you like?" So I'm studying politics at university. So, well, why don't you join a political party? I said, "Well, yeah, okay, I'll do that." So I joined Labour, and then I got what year was that? Not 2009. Okay, so that would have been under Gordon Brown. Yeah, yeah. You're a Brownite at heart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I joined Labour. I don't think anyone joined Labour that time. No, I think you must have been the only person who joined that year. Everyone else was sodding off. <laughs> so I got involved. I mean, look, it was a bit... I, but I wasn't like... Talk back. about a losing bet. Bloody hell. Yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> Out of the frying pan. No, I, 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 um, I was very interested in politics. I was, I was kind of... I became kind of ideological and then I didn't really have a home in the party. I wasn't very factional or anything like that and friends with everyone like different people Blairites whatever so I've got a lot of people that are friends in the Labour Party who are from different political traditions and different mm. parts of the party and whatever um, but when Corbyn was running in 2015 I thought genuinely thought that that is the best way Labour that's the best chance Labour have of winning an election again Yeah, because we need something transformative we need some diff- new vision because since 2008 financial crisis Living standards have deteriorated, yeah. and you do need someone to stay to, to 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 speak their mind and to say, you know, this is our route out of it. Uh, and I I felt like Corbyn was the only one really saying that. And I think you know, 
I guess I am a socialist and I, I do think that the movement behind the Labour Party is as important as the people that get elected to represent Labour in, in Parliament. And uh, and yeah, it's just kind of... <laughs> in 2016, I uh, applied for the job of his spokesman yeah. and uh, somehow got the job. So, so there I was. Amazing. So you, you go from being... Uh, uh, until that point, your, your only rank had been activist. Yeah. Had you ever been a you know secretary of the local party or... Any of that? I think I stood for council a couple of times uh, in South End, which and in like 2009 or something. Oh, so I, I got I, I got hammered. So I, that was it. Um, that that was it really. And uh, I I just applied and and based on the work I'd done, I guess with the ga- with fairer gambling and like the traction that we had had and what was I suppose a very small team uh, got got the job. So that was it was. Uh, I, I'm sure you know this, Matt. Like, uh, but. It, it's like learning to ski jump. There's no, yeah. there's nothing that can really prepare you for a job like that. And it is like you learn a lot on the job, and you have to learn, and you have to learn quickly on the job. Um, but like dealing with the lobby has been, sorry, <laughs> dealing with the lobby has been like it was a huge challenge. I can't imagine what that's like, particularly for Corbyn at that time. Yeah, I, c- I imagine it was the possibly the hardest job in politics that you had there. In terms of getting the job, were you interviewed by Corbyn? I was interviewed by um, Kevin Slocum, who was the person that I ended up taking on his role. Yeah. Um, uh, and Carrie Murphy, who's obviously the chief of staff. And then I was interviewed by, second time, Kevin, Seamus and Carrie. Seamus, obviously, director of strategy. Scary. Seamus, when I first met I was I was terrified of him. Uh, but he is, like, like really, really nice bloke. Okay, that's uh, reassuring. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, uh, very very funny uh, which a lot of people don't really know about or see uh, and I used to say to him because he had this kind of reputation and the, the caricature of him in the, particularly the right wing press is this kind of a very dark like kind of character who was pulling the strings and like yeah. but he's not, not like that at all and uh, um, I just said to him maybe you should just go on like have I got news for you or something so people can actually see what you're like yeah, yeah. because he is unlike any maybe Alistair Campbell got similar treatment but he is seen as a kind of um, a fig- political figure in his own right. Yes. And when he does lobby briefings, Seamus, he's often quoted on the record, which is very unconventional. Yeah. You know, Seamus Milne said, but actually what he's doing, it, I mean, he, he and Jeremy are very, very politically aligned. So if, he's, if he feels like he's speaking in a kind of um, verbose manner and very kind of articulate and uh, expansive way about things, it's, he is genuinely reflecting Jeremy. And, and, and really, no one... And that's what the lobby want. They want to know that they're getting the master's voice. If you have a spokesman that doesn't reflect what the the person they're representing is really thinking, that person's dead. Exactly. Yeah. And there was a. I remember there was a huge contrast between uh, who used to do the lobby briefings for Theresa May, and it was, um, and and the contrast between Seamus because the, the Theresa May spokesman used to say, like tautologies in response to everything like yeah. uh, it will happen when it happens right? <laughs> yeah. and it was like Brexit means Brexit, Brexit, means Brexit. and it was just kind of the, the kind of stock response to everything and then Seamus would come in and it would be like the kind of um, uh, <laughs> what are we going to learn the lobby would be like what are we going to learn about today like, it was yeah. like it was an, and I think that's that's the role that politicians should have it's like and political parties should have it's an educating function it's like this is what, why we think it this is what we think and instead of just trying to avoid negative publicity all the time, 
or trying to compromise what you think because you think it might lead to negative coverage. Look, people aren't really engaged with politics outside of an election. Like, why compromise what you actually believe in when eventually that view will cut through and you can win the argument? Uh, I think it's a very brave way of doing politics, um, but it does come with its pitfalls, which are that people, things get taken out of context. Yeah. Um, and you say things that people don't like, which is inevitable. Uh, yeah. In terms of doing the lobby briefings yourself, I can't imagine a more terrifying experience. Do you remember your first one? Yeah, I mean, uh, Seamus used to lead lead them really. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, that. I mean, it, but it is terif- It is terrifying. A terrifying concept, like yeah, crowded around the table and firing questions at you. Hostile individuals. Did you do it? No, I never did that. Bloody hell. No, I don't think I'd ever want to do it. No, I, um, I think you know, it's it's a very it's very unusual that the culture of Westminster is you know, unless you've been there and worked there, I mean. People don't even know that each newspaper has journalists in Westminster. People That's don't right. know that. People don't know that there's uh, uh, what's called a lobby. For people who don't know. Yeah. Um, and take it from the gallery, which is another thing, and it's all yes. And and each newspaper has four, five, maybe half a dozen journalists there working, looking for stuff all the time. Yeah. And eventually, that kind of gets, I think, in the, the the clamor and the pressure to generate content and stories and news lends itself to a, a climate where you end up with this kind of gossip orientated approach to poli- political journalism mm. and I don't know how much Guido Fawkes has it had an influence on that <laughs> oh, I think it existed long before him no I mean uh, oh before the Guido oh, Fawkes yeah. website really oh without a doubt yeah I diary so. columns you know if you think of a diary column it's been around punch private art you know it's always been yeah. there the, Guido is just an online manifestation of Interesting. A, a, a phenomenon that's always been there. Yeah. Born out of partly a desire of the public to want to have that tittle-tattle a little bit. People want a little window into what's really going on behind the scenes. I agree with that. I think there's definitely a market for it. Um, I, I, I just find that the proportion of what I would call Labour process stories, what's happening in the Labour Party, who's up, who's down, yeah. who said what in what meeting isn't really of much uh, interest to the public, proportionate to the level of coverage oh, it gets. totally agree. As someone who worked in the uh, towards the end of the Blair-Brown era, which was, that was really the only story until Iraq, without being flippant about it, was constantly, when's Gordon Brown going to become Prime Minister? Battles between Blairites and Brownites was... It, and <laughs> sadly, even though we always said the public aren't bothered, the truth is there was a section of the public that did actually quite enjoy it. Mm. There was a thrill to knowing, well, he's slagging him off. You know, you can't help it. Look at the Trump White House and what's happened with Steve Bannon and Scaramucci. The soap opera of it, oddly, we all say we're not that bothered. Everyone relishes it. You know, Michael Wolff's book sells, Rawnsley's book sells, Shipman's books are great. You know, there will always be that that part of it. We We like to try and suppress it and pretend we're above it. I read all of them. <laughs> and I love them all. Um, so what was Corbyn like as a boss? Uh, honestly, like as I said to you, I left just before the election. And so I, how long uh, were you there for, two years? Just uh, just over a year. And I would never have gone out to bat for him off my, off my own back. You know, I've got no... Just, you paid you though, right? <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, after I left, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, like... Just to put on the record, I do not have any political ambitions. Like I did. Oh come on! No, 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 I don't. Matt, genuinely, genuinely, Matt, I, I did think about running for Parliament in my own constituency. Yeah. But then it became an all-women shortlist. I was like, I'm not going to do that. And then I thought about it. I was like, No way am I going to be an MP. But you're so young. No, but I don't want to do it. But you've stood for council twice. You've been 
you know, yeah, official I, spokesman for the leader of the opposition. I, I, I genuinely, I, it, it just doesn't appeal to me at all. But, you, but you, you, I'm frustrated. You should. No, no, no. You should want to be. No, no, no. You're young, you're talented, you're bright, you're but, different. But Working class voices are important in Parliament. That's very kind. No, listen, the reason I'm saying this is because I had no ulterior motive to supporting him other than yeah. I really liked him as a bloke. Yeah. And I, th- I think his heart's in the right place and he's a really nice person and I like someone like that to be Prime Minister because he isn't a robot, he isn't like a puppet politician. He will give you a considered answer and his range of knowledge on... Things that you, you don't see in political interviews, really, on so many different subjects, is is phenomenal. And actually, when I was out with him, if we went on visits or whatever, if we ever come across people like members of the public up to him, whatever, you'd always feel very comfortable because yeah. he's so so much a people person. I think that largely comes down to the fact that he used to kept doing his surgeries every Friday at yeah. his constituency, like kept meeting people, and he was very interested in people's lives. And, and I, I do. I do have a lot of time for him, to be fair, as a, as a person. But um, yeah. But in a working relationship, would he mark your work? Would you? How would yeah. it work? Would you report to him? What was that? What was the so working I, relationship? I, I would I would report to Seamus, and I would speak to Seamus. Obviously, he's he'd be like my he's my line manager, if you like. So uh, I would obviously speak to Jeremy, but he obviously is very busy and not nowhere near as much as I'd speak to Seamus. But Seamus was like in constant contact with Jeremy anyway. And what, do you, what sort of conversations do you have? God, I've worked for politicians. And you, you, relationships with all of them are different, and it's not always the ones that you presume would be nice, remember details. Would he talk to you about South End and things like that? Would he remember yeah. your girlfriend's name or your mum's birthday, yeah, yeah. that sort of stuff? No, definitely. Uh, he, I remember in August 2016, so I was there for a few months, and then I... And then, I was honestly, I've never been so knackered from a job. That was during after the leadership challenge, and it was like a nightmare. Uh, I was working 13, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And yeah. that's no exaggeration. It was a, and I said to, I said to him, I'm, I'm, I'm going on holiday for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think actually just for a week it was in August. Uh, and he said, Where are you going? I said, Mexico. And he said, Oh, speak to Laura about Mexico, because Laura's his his wife, yeah. and. Uh, um, and she's from Mexico, and it's like, and then she'll tell you where to go, and like, and then he said, "Who are you going with?" Oh, my girlfriend Alex. Remembers her name, asked me how she is, like all the time. And um, when I left, I had her kind of leaving drinks, and he turned up, obviously. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, no, honestly, like really cares about his staff. So that's always good to know. Yeah. Um, the Viceland document. Were you there when the Viceland documentary was made? No. That was before my time. That just, was just. Vice. Vice was made. I think it was Vice. Yeah. Well, Vice and I know now. Incredible insight into, and I'm sure things have changed since then. Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. The bit that really struck me was, well, the two bits was his reaction to the Jonathan Friedland uh, article, where if the leader of the Labour Party thinks the Guardian and the BBC are hostile, I think maybe the hierarchy of uh, priorities is slightly skewed. But also, the Prime Minister's questions prep didn't seem to be that well organised or or that um, detailed it was almost as though it didn't matter do you think he started to take it more seriously yeah definitely there's a it's totally different now even when I when I first started in June uh, yeah beginning of June 2016 it had already changed the preparation there was people coming over from HQ um, there were I mean Seamus Andrew Fisher director of policy uh, it's much more uh much more sort of confined operation and 
the reason for that, I think, initially was that a lot of the stuff was leaking uh, from the bigger group. So they they narrowed the team down. And now, I mean, it, I did I, I helped with that, that a couple of times. Not not it wasn't really my job to prep in for PMQs. Um, but it, yeah, much more efficient now. And actually, what's very interesting is the uh, the convergence between PMQs and delivering the sound bite, as, yes. you, as you must know about, uh, and hoping that that gets picked up by the mainstream press. But also, now you can control that because you That's can right. put the video out on social media. And, and actually, you can do a monologue that has yeah. no relationship at all to what <laughs> yeah. you've been asking. And yeah. actually, that makes for a very good clip. It makes a great clip. and But people are sort of wise to it now. They go, well, Corbyn's doing his little He's clip. Doing his clip. But in a way, fair enough. You've got a stage, use it. Use it in whatever way benefits you, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, I think politicians before would try to play the game and they're, they'd deliver the line and, and as I said before, like, hope that that would get picked up. And um, now if you can control the channels that you put out that soundbite on, then, then why not? You know, why not maximise the utility of that? There's still the other side of it, which it's always good when the when the leader of the opposition gets one over on the prime minister or or, or vice versa. Um, he could still improve, couldn't he? He could still be better at laying traps and uh, sucker punches instead of having scattergun approaches. Really, and he perhaps to be fair to him, the last few months has been a bit more forensic. Like he he has improved. One thing that slightly frustrates me is he doesn't often seem to listen to the answer. <laughs> is that just the cacophony of the commons? Is it that he's got his clip lines ready? Does it matter whether he listens to the answer or not? Or is that something that he should do, do you think? Uh, I think it's a, difficult, it's a difficult job because she doesn't answer the question, uh, really, ever. No, so, so, yeah, that's, so, But that's the point, right? Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> I mean, she's not going to answer it, is she? But, yeah. but therefore, like... Um, in that kind of very high-pressured environment where you've got the other, the other side. Because yeah. I used to sit, before the lobby brief, you used to sit in the gallery. Yes. And you can hit it, the noise that the Tories make is deafening. Yes. It, and and he, he, he just has to say one, and they're shouting at him, and you can't yeah. actually hear what he's saying. And the t- TV does no justice to how loud it is. No, correct. It is absolute bedlam in there. People, I actually think people quite enjoy watching it. But I think they would be genuinely shocked if they went in there. You can't yeah, be expected to keep your cool. We expect them to, and many are good at it. But it is very, very hard. So maybe you just can't hear. It, it's a skill, Matt. It's a skill to to be able in that environment to be able to think on your feet. Yeah. And um, you know, adapt what you might be planning to ask or say. It's an incredibly difficult skill. Now. Whether that is a skill that is relevant to the job of being prime minister mm. is another question, right? I mean, it, this is where I think the um, uh, that there is a legitimate debate about you know what qualities do we want in our prime minister? Is the theatre of politics an important um, aspect of of that role, mm-hmm. or is actually decision making and policy making and communicating with the public and relating to the public more important? Um, so, yeah, I, I always think that there's a real tension between the theatre of politics and what that demands of the individual. I totally is, agree. And actually what the right skills are for that job. And I worry about people who are too immersed in the game yeah, and lose sight of why they're in politics in the first place to, to make life, particularly on the Labour side, to reduce inequality and, and give disadvantaged people as, if you, as close as you can get to an equal start in life. Yeah. Um, and if we're being really radical, an equal start in life. But politic, 
Parliament isn't just a, a, you know, it's sometimes reduced to a slanging match. It's also a vibrant and robust democracy that I also think we should treasure. That it, it doesn't justify the sorts of heckles that we see on both sides and the sort of behaviour we see on both sides. But I'm glad we live in a country where the elected leader has to face a bit of barracking on a weekly basis, live on TV. I'd rather live, really, with the PMQs that we have rather than, you know, the sort of scrutiny they have in America or even the European Union or even, you know, dare I say it, Scotland. You know, there is something uniquely adversarial about the House of Commons that I, I wouldn't want to dilute. I agree. Uh, and actually, I was having a chat with a lobby journalists the other day about... Um, they said, they said who, who do you like that's coming through in, yeah. like, in new Labour MPs? And I said, I said to, to this particular journalist, you're going to hate my answer, right? But I like Laura Pidcock. And they said, oh, Laura Pidcock, she doesn't want to be friends with the Tories. <laughs> and I was like, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you really like the adversarial nature of politics and the House of Commons and then moan that she doesn't want to be friends with the Tories, right? Because what she's saying there is, not saying that she wouldn't work with Tories in some circumstances. She's saying that she doesn't want to have more in common with the people who sit opposite her in the chamber than she does with her constituents. And I think this is actually goes back to what we were saying earlier about parliamentarism. Yeah. People get elected to Parliament and they feel like they're part of that institution more than they are representatives. There's, a, there's always a danger of that, I think. But isn't there a danger that you can sort of misdiagnose the problem and, and rather that be about Parliament, that's about people being too tribal and not open to... It's, it's, you can absolutely do both. You can heckle a prime minister that you completely disagree with, but get on with her, like her company, have a cup of tea, find that you know. The, I think one of the great thrills in life actually is talking to people that you disagree with. Mm. If you're in a friendship group and you all agree, it's <laughs> tedious. I can't think of anything more boring than only hanging around with people that I agree with. <laughs> no, that's a fair point. My best mates are people that I completely disagree with. Yeah. When I go out with them, you know, to the football or to the pub, you think. Gonna have an absolute laugh because we could have, you know, not a Barney, but <laughs> it's more exciting. It's true, actually. Yeah. So we should be more friends with Tories. I, I have had to work with Tories <laughs> to get this campaign done. And, well, that's and, and, what you I was know, it, I, I have to say, and, and the and, and the hated mainstream media, <laughs> yeah. right? And and actually, it's, it has made me reflect on, you know, the value of that, and I, you know, it can, you can actually get stuff done if you. Uh, know navigate that in the right way and uh, that was that i would never th think i would ever be on the same side as ian duncan smith right? no. but i am on this so it's like but, and you will be on other issues and yeah. you'll be there might even be an issue that you disagree with jeremy corbyn on and that's not that doesn't matter too much you know the labor party or any party is a broad statement of values and within that there are different schools of thought and occasionally on on one issue you might agree with the smp or the dup or a tory or whoever and i think the public are comfortable with that. That's how they live their lives. Politics, there's no shame in politics reflecting that, I don't think. Um, it's interesting that it's made you sort of reconsider, because I think, I think anyone who's been involved in politics at all does occasionally have to just reassess mm. where things are, reassess their own behaviour. I mean, particularly online, it gets very passionate mm. and very abusive. It can get quite nasty. I mean... You're, fair to say, robust online. You don't take any nonsense. Um, yeah. Do you sometimes think, oh, I wish I hadn't been so passionate? I, it's been a learning curve, Matt. <laughs> I, 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 when I left the leader's office, right, I have to say I was so burnt out and I was like, right, I have effectively given my life to the Labour... I fought the Labour Party yes. right, for just over a year, but, like, lots of things went to shit in that time, right? That weren't work-related, right? Yeah. And I was like, right, right, I've really, like, 
sacrificed myself for them. I've tried to help the party, you know, I've mm. done as much as I can to help, you know. Uh, and then I come out of the leader's office and I just got started getting loads of abuse from people who were Labour members yeah. because I had been working for Corbyn and I didn't really, I didn't really appreciate that they, that was inevitable, I suppose, because they were from a different faction or tradition in the party or whatever. But I just thought, well, this is a bit sort of a bit unfair, if anything, because I've tried my best to do a good job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the show's kept on the road and the election wasn't a disaster. So, you know, uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I felt like the, the hostility was, um, my, my behaviour is a response to hostility that was already there. I didn't create it. No. You know, I, I, fe I felt that hostility. Um, and yes, of course, I, I should rise above it, but, but sometimes I don't. But then I suppose it depends at what point you get on the carousel, doesn't it? You know, you, you might see it as a reaction. Other people who say join Twitter after you go, well, Matt Zarb cousin started it because he started from, <laughs> you know, I started in 2018 and all I saw was him abusing a load of Blairites, you know, and then it just perpetuates. I mean, it, it's absolutely fine to disagree and disagree robustly. What about in terms of the new language? Right. Which seems to sort of borrow from Danny Dyer films and, and Football Factory sort of melts and slugs and whatever else. It tickles me pink that people get offended by gammon and melt or whatever. They're not words I would necessarily use myself, but they're so obviously comedic. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing. It, I've, I've been called quite vindictive things. What, like, what's the worst thing you've been called? Oh... I don't, I don't think it's suitable for family podcast, Matt. Oh, this isn't a family podcast. This is <laughs> filthy and adult in nature. You don't have to say if you're not, you're not well, comfortable. Well, look, I mean, yeah, don't worry quite, 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 quite a lot of things that are worse than, than melt or slug. Um, the, the purpose of it, the purpose of this kind of lexicon, it, it, it is to... Uh, it is supposed to be funny. And we, we're called, you know, trots, hard left, Stalinist, all this kind of stuff. But they are rooted in at least... Leon Trotsky, Joseph Stalin, you know, they, they come from political traditions. It'd be like me moaning about being called a Blairite. Yeah, but I think hard left is still pejorative. It's still a pejorative term because what you're saying is these people... So if, you, if you're calling Corbyn supporters hard left and you're calling Blairites moderates, that's, they're loaded terms, right? I agree that moderate relatively is a positive term. Yeah. <laughs> There's no doubt. But um, th th I mean, what, what do you say instead of hard left, like strong left? I think, Ultra left. I, I think you can just say Corbyn supporter, even like Corbynista, which is derived from presumably more... Chavista. I thought it was something. from Barist, Barista. <laughs> I thought it was like a sort of Cafe Nero type thing. Maybe I don't know. Uh, but look, but, that, then that, but what, what my point but, is, my but point then how is, would you describe Corbyn? You wouldn't say Corbyn to Corbynista. I mean, that'd be the sort of tautology that. that... I, I, I think Corbynism is acceptable, acceptable way of, of describing what his political project. I but, agree, but, but if you said where is Corbyn on the political compass, you'd, you'd say. He's on the left of the Labour Party. I would say that. But, yeah. But the, the point of this is, I mean, we can disagree or agree whether they're pejorative or not, yeah. but name-calling pre-exists melt slug. Gammon, oh, absolutely. Right? And it's been directed at the left. So all of this is like but a response. And the right. And, I mean, people have been called warmongers and all stuff like that. Like, it, I, I'm not sure who started it. I mean, you'd have to no. go back a very long way. <laughs> people get called all sorts of names. UKIP get called names. Sure. The SNP get called names. Like, it... It's kind of always been there on every side. I suppose the question is, do we keep doing it? Yeah. Or is it better if we all stop? I, that's a very good question. It would be lovely if we all stopped. I would like to talk about policies and all that. You know, I'd like to talk about how to improve the country, genuinely. Would but like these to. melts won't shut but up. These melts won't, exactly. <laughs> Getting in the way. <laughs> no, but it's true. Uh, look, 
whatever, what's, what's the latest one that the right call are snowflakes and then we yeah, sort yeah. of gammon emerged yeah. and then it and, and look it's silly but yeah. it's supposed to be funny it's not supposed to be vindictive no um, but like yeah if you want to have a, uh, an armistice that would be lovely how do we arrange that? That's a good question. Should we do that? Should we yeah, try? We should try and arrange. We need to get a Blairite, a Corbyn, a, 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 a Corbynite, yeah. whatever, <laughs> non-loaded, non-London. It's trying to be PC now. PC. You need a UKIPper, a, a Cybernat. That's yeah. not, you know, you need everyone in here. Yeah, yeah. A representative, a, dele- a delegation. To try and start, because, the, I mean, the problem is you don't want to remove piss-taking. We can't no. be too sensitive. Everyone's got to laugh at themselves. Yeah. And be able to have the piss taken out of them by people they disagree with. Otherwise, we're doomed. But I suppose, there, where do you draw the line? Maybe no. an armistice is, is not, not the right desire, but we could try. Could, you know what we could try and do is a day a year, you know, like Earth Day. <laughs> Have like non-melt day or whatever, whatever we're going to call it, where we all just agree. We'll disagree, but we won't call each other names. <laughs> so we can still say, but do you, you think, socialist. Do you think that the, the, in, in many respects this is um, inevitable given the polarisation of online debate? And the, and the antagonism that exists yeah. online in online debate, you're not trying to win anyone over. It's like, this is what this person believes, this is what this person believes, and it's like a kind of melee, and it's not a constructive exercise to, no. be, to be debating anyone on Twitter. Really. No, we all get drawn into it to a greater or a lesser extent. I don't know, I just worry, and this is probably like... A, I, and I'm not trying to sound like noble or earnest or anything, but I do worry about the tone, in, just in general. I don't like confrontation. Mm. Like, I've been going to football for years. I hate it when a fight breaks out. It scares the life out of me. I don't like any sort of unrest. And I do worry that we talk to each other in a way that is disrespectful and that people's feelings do get hurt. And not that I necessarily feel sorry for people that I disagree with, but just in general, I would rather have a more calm... Arena, And I think, actually, to be fair to Jeremy Corbyn, when he talked about a kind of gentler politics, I think he genuinely does want that. Yeah. I mean, there are times where I've said, uh, I've thought, when I've been kind of attacked online, I've actually thought things, and not tweeted it, obviously, but I've thought, you wouldn't say that to my face. And I thought, if I tweeted that, that would look really confrontational. But yeah. it's true, they it wouldn't true. say it to my face. And I wouldn't probably wouldn't say some of the things I've said <laughs> to, to their, their face. face. So... I think this is a, a new, relatively new phenomenon that social media has brought people who would never have ever come into contact with each other in any other context together. And you're not actually talking to a person, you're talking to some text on a page. That's right. So it doesn't feel the the empathy's lost. Exactly. Well, maybe we can try and do something positive. But I mean, we, we'll go back on Twitter tomorrow and it'll all be the same. <laughs> but it'd be nice if it was different. I mean, we've already um, sort of gone over time, but just in terms of where you see politics going in the next few years, do you think Corbyn will be Prime Minister? I do, yeah. I actually think there might be... Well, I think there's a very good chance to be election this year. Yeah. Because uh, I don't think they're going to be able to negotiate anything like uh, an acceptable deal. For the uh, sake of my career, I hope so. Oh, yeah? It's good for business, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps me interested, doesn't it? Would you go back and work for the party or for Corbyn for, uh, during an election? Not inclined to, no. No. I'll be an outrider. I'll support him from the outside. I mean, what... In terms of your career, then, so you think Corbyn... Will, uh, there might be an election this year and he, he, you think he'd win it this year? Yeah, I think so. In terms of your career, then, you, you worked for the campaign for Fairer Gambling. Do you want to stay there or where do you see your own personal ambitions? Uh, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to stay there. Obviously, we've got to see through the implementation of the £2 stake and I'd like to maybe look at what we can do with online gambling as well and uh, I'd quite like to write a book about campaigning uh, and how to campaign, Great not idea. just the kind of how-to because 
I, I see a lot of people trying to start campaigns and and it's very difficult to navigate the political system and how to know how to make an impact. And yeah. I'd quite like to just write something on that maybe in the near future. Um, it, but no political ambition whatsoever. Not not right now, Matt. No, I couldn't think anything worse. I think. Do you know what it is? I think it's having worked very closely with MPs and yeah. just seeing how difficult their lives are. <laughs> it's awful. And I just think I don't really want to do that. No, it's and, ferocious. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so I think you'd be. I, I question why you would want to do it rather than why you wouldn't. I think that view probably only comes from having worked in it. Yeah. Because I understand why people want to do it. But what, having worked in it, I just think, oh, God. No. Do it for a bit, maybe. Yeah. Get it out of your system, because it's a good thing to do. Do it while you're young, yeah. And then and then jump, can't, jump, on, can't the down. Yeah, yeah. jump get, on the media gravy train. <laughs> that's right, get on the gravy train. <laughs> and, um, you got, but the, you know, I, I'm so grateful almost to my younger self that I that I worked for the party and you must be it's just such a great experience it is yeah and I, I mean, can never take that away from you no it's true and I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, you know I would, I would always do it again if I had the chance like go back and do it again I wouldn't go back well here's I'll, the thing let's say Corbyn does become Prime Minister and he offers you a job at number 10 you can't turn that down oh I'd have a decision then <laughs> you would have a decision <laughs> And I hope you'll come back on if you do. Absolutely. Matt, we have, not, pleasure. we have not had anywhere near enough time to talk about all the things I would love to have asked you about. I'll come back. I hope you would come back. Of course. So if an election gets called, or even if it doesn't... Yeah. Um, I've been so excited about talking to you, and you've, not, been dis- great. you've not disappointed at all. Oh, thanks. That's great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Well, there you go, Matt Zarb, cousin. I could have interviewed him for 100 hours and not run out of stuff to ask him. In fact, we, we did carry on the discussion a bit in the uh, in the pub afterwards, which was great, because he's such a fascinating person to talk to. Great defence of Corbyn, of the man, of the ideas. And talking to him about his gambling addiction, he's obviously been through the mill with it, and you have to respect people who are prepared to talk about their problems like that. Um... And it was a great insight into what gambling addiction really is and how it manifests itself. And it's not just about the money. In fact, it doesn't sound like it's really about the money at all. And he's been... In, oh, excuse me. He's been instrumental in getting the government to, to impose that, that £2 maximum stake on fixed odds betting terminals. So he's had real success in a policy area. How many people can ever say that in their lives? Um, so well done to him and just for being such a great guest. And it is thrilling to sit down opposite people you disagree with uh, and enjoy it Um, because uh, inevitably there are things you agree on and inevitably you do get a little bit more insight into that perspective and that's something that social media absolutely doesn't give and it's so adversarial so what do you make of that suggestion an annual twitter amnesty whatever we call it um if you've got any ideas what to call it all the ones i've written down are diabolical I've written down here, you are what you tweet, which sounds like some really earnest conclusion to a New Statesman article, so I shall not be using that. Um, but try and suggest something better. I'm sure you can. Email your ideas to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. A hashtag, ideally, for an annual Twitter amnesty where we're all just pleasant to each other. We can still disagree, but we don't perhaps call each other uh, horrible names. 
as always, it's a pleasure to get your emails. Lucy Fairweather gets in touch and says, Matt, I've been listening since I did a weekly paper round, aged 14 in Dorset, and now 19 studying history and politics at the University of Cambridge. Well, Lucy, congratulations on getting into such a great university, and thank you for listening from such a young age. I was slightly surprised, actually, you'd start listening at 14. But, I mean, that, that was around the age that I was getting into politics, if not a little bit younger. So maybe there are people out there, if you're listening to this and you're younger than 14, do get in touch and let me know. Um, is it rude to ask who the oldest listener is? Do that on your own back. I, w- I won't pull away for that. Uh, Glenn Coleman-Cook gets in touch and says, Matt, uh, I love this. I enjoy the show, especially now that it's weekly. I don't share your politics. In fact, I'm a UKIP district councillor. Not only that, dear listener, he's a UKIP district councillor down in Thanet, the heart of Farage Town. Um, he says, I love the ethos, particularly in the live shows of talking to and having a laugh with people with whom you disagree without being nasty or unpleasant. Well, Glenn, that is the whole point. So if you've got an idea, mate, thank you for getting in touch. It's an honour to have been in contact with one of the last few remaining UKIP politicians in the country. Um, do get in touch uh, with an idea for a hashtag or a title. I mean, and when should we do it? When would this annual day be? I suppose the sooner the better, really. Otherwise, we'll have to wait nearly a year. Um, so send those ideas into politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And again, where you listen, uh, any reflections on the show at all, not just on this episode with Matt, but any that you've listened to recently or, or in the past, which covers them all. Um, but if anything comes out of that conversation with Matt in particular, do send it in. Uh, and if you look at the, the notes uh, the, that come with the show uh, on SoundCloud or on iTunes, you can, I'll put Matt's contact details in there so you can get in touch with him as well. Thank you for all your emails, for the reviews, which are, are brilliant and help other people find it. If, if you can find the time just to leave a quick review on whatever platform you listen on, it does help the show. Uh, and if you can share episodes on social media and wherever you can... Um, that would be that would be much appreciated. The next show is a live show with John Landsman, founder of Momentum, at the other Palace. Uh, that show is sold out. But as always, there are sometimes late returns on the day, or people can't go, so they'll tweet me. Um, so always check my Twitter feed at Matt Ford, just in case a couple of pairs come up uh, for that. Um, thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour so far. Uh, Canterbury this week was. Um, I made the mistake of telling the audience I was on a diet. And when I came out for the second half, someone left a bag of M&Ms on the stage. Um, sadly, they were peanut M&Ms, to which I have a fatal allergy. So, um, in a way, it was a good deed on both counts because I couldn't eat them. Um, but it just showed that someone cared. Um, I'm also, in the coming days, in Cheltenham and Chippenham. Uh, tickets for those shows are available on my website, mattford.com slash live. And my new Edinburgh show is on sale now. Brexit through the gift shop. I love a shit pun. But there we are. That's the title of the show. I can't change it now. Brexit through the gift shop, and that's uh, through the Edinburgh Festival uh, pretty much the whole of August. So hopefully I'll see plenty of you up there. Uh, Thanks for all your emails, all your messages, and um, let's try and come up with an idea for for this amnesty. This is also the first show since the very sad passing of Tessa Jowell, who is by far the most special person I've interviewed on this show, one of the most special people I've ever met in my life. And, um... Obviously, it was announced she was suffering with, with brain cancer a few months ago, and it's um, I just hoped against hope she would, you know, have some sort of recovery because I've never met anyone like that before who felt the weight of politics so emotionally in a positive way. It just meant so much to her to represent people and to try and change the world. The respect she had for the people that elected her, I've never seen that or had it expressed in that way 
in the way that Tessa did. And you'd have seen the tributes from all sides, but they were particularly special. It it was just... I just Obviously, towards you just hope against hope that people can 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 live a bit longer, can can recover, can find a way. Um, I was just so sad that she that that she's that she's gone um, because she was an, she was an icon and a hero. And you just think, imagine a world in which Tessa Jow would have been prime minister. It's just so special. Um, but she had a phenomenal impact on society a phenomenal impact on the country and a phenomenal impact on anyone who met her. So, really, this this episode is a, is a tribute to her, but in a way, like, so much of politics is a tribute to her. So I don't want that to sound glib, but I couldn't not mention it because she's the best guest I've ever had on. Um, and go back and listen to it because it is really just the most incredible experience listening to Tessa talk about why she's in politics. Like you could... There were people... I've never seen an audience so emotional about a guest before. It, it's really something unique. Um, so, in tribute to Tessa Jowell, um, let's all be a bit nicer to each other and let's remind ourselves what politics is really all about, which is changing the world for the better um, and enjoying it. Um, but, Tessa, we'll all miss you. Um, uh, that's all to say, really, I suppose. Um, yes, we'll be back next week uh, where I'll be interviewing John Landsman Um, but thank you for downloading this episode of The Political Party and I'll see you next week